0: Welcome back to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm Rhonda Blevins, a Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of Chapel-by-the-Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida.
1: And I'm David Brown, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of The Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina.
0: Well, Here on Season 3 of Pastor Life Podcast, we're tackling some courageous conversations, those things that kind of make us shake in our boots just a little bit, or maybe a whole lot, and today is no different. Today, our topic is politics. Woohoo! Right?
1: Everybody's <laughs> been waiting for this one. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Well, you know, some of these courageous conversations have been ones that I think maybe we could choose to avoid if we wanted to. I'm not yeah. so sure with politics, right? Um, but you know, we'll tackle them all, and this one seems to often be front and center, even if it's Not something we're going directly at. It's just sort of right there, maybe a a, a hair below the surface.
0: All right, well, I'm looking forward to your interview with our special guest, Doug Cushing, one of our pinnacle associates. So let's get to this podcast.
1: Well, Rhonda, we finally got to the politics episode in our (laughs) Courageous Conversations series. I I know that's one that maybe was one of the first to come to mind. It's actually been one of the final issue-based episodes that we've recorded. So I'm glad to get to this conversation. And our conversation partner uh, is Doug Cushing, one of our pinnacle colleagues and a fellow pastor. And uh, I think he had a lot of good things to say. What do you bring into this conversation around politics?
0: Well, a couple of things. I think one of the things that I'm thinking about as we enter into this topic is how um, it it seems like at one time in my Christian journey, people came to conversations like this out of a Christian worldview, like their identity as people of faith was first and foremost. I don't know if that has shifted or it's just my perception that it has shifted, but I feel like they're The political orientation of people is first and foremost in people's minds these days. I am a Red America Christian, you know, and Red America comes first or vice versa. I'm a Blue America Christian and Blue America comes first. And so that's the lens through which a lot of people in the pews are viewing their world. And of course, then what um, we preach and proclaim and how we lead. Um, So that's one of the things I'm thinking about. How about you?
1: Yeah, I think that while we can't control what people hear when we preach, uh you open up the gospel and you read something about Jesus or you read a teaching of Jesus, and it's interesting how people will interpret even just reading a scripture, much less right. a interpretive part of a sermon. And I think it gets interpreted through that lens that you talked about, you know, whether it's a red lens, a blue lens. And it seems that those cultural divides or political divides are more entrenched now than they were.
0: One of the things, well, let me just say it this way. Another thing that I bring to the conversation and uh, I'm interested in seeing if you, if you go there at all is the tension between the prophetic nature of our calling and the pastoral nature. I saw someone, I can't remember who it was on Twitter, said that something like we have way too many prophets and not enough pastors these days. And I I kind of pushed back gently on that um, to say that the people who have platforms are the prophetic people and the way that they get their platform is by being um, divisive in a way. That's often how people gain a big platform, but the calling for pastors is different. The calling for pastors is conciliatory, is community building, like you said. And so it it's a, seems like a really different calling. Sometimes I think it'd be a lot easier just to uh, have only people who agree with me and vote like I do in the pews, but that's just not my reality. I don't think it's the reality for a lot of pastors.
1: Well, Doug and I didn't particularly use that language around prophetic versus pastoral, but i I do think that as local church pastors— That certainly is a part of what we bring to the table when we preach the good news is that we preach the good news, hopefully, in a way that will provide challenge or issue a calling or an invitation to the people that are sitting in our pews. And I think we're always trying to measure that in terms of what will be a faithful and effective way to preach the gospel in our context. I can remember when my campus minister at Clemson would talk about the speakers that he would bring in for our Tuesday night gatherings, and he would talk about how he could bring in someone from the outside, you know, to to challenge us or to 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 pull us maybe to a place that that uh, theologically he might have even gotten in trouble about. But when you bring in a guest, you know, that sort of prophetic message can can stand there with with you know, maybe fewer consequences. And I think when we are the the pastoral leader of a congregation, there's a balance there. And Doug does talk a lot in the interview about ways that we can build Christian community in the local church uh, that in, inspire us to act as God's people out in the world, but with a common mission. Uh, I think maybe a, a, a way to try to operate at a level that Rises above those cultural divides that you were talking about a few minutes ago.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your interview with Doug, who um, kind of has the voice of God, right? Doug has a nice, deep, rich voice. <laughs> He's got a
1: great podcasting
0: interview voice. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, let's welcome to the podcast Reverend Doug Cushing.
1: Well, we are here with Doug Cushing, the uh, pastor of The Bridge Church in Leland, North Carolina, just outside of Wilmington. And Doug has been a part of Pinnacle since the very early days. He has planted churches and pastored churches and has uh, done a lot of good work in uh, uh, building the reign of God in the world and the different places where he's been. Doug, we're grateful to have you on the podcast. Anything you would add to that introduction, anything you would want to say as uh, our listeners get to meet you, I just want
2: to say it's it's great to be with you all today and I want to thank you for inviting me to be here. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be a part of the team with with you and Rhonda uh, at, at Pinnacle. I have been around Pinnacle since since its inception when Mark Tidsworth and I were both a lot younger, but we uh, we've enjoyed <laughs> seeing the growth of Pinnacle and the opportunity we have to do ministry with a wider audience and just with our local churches. And so, yeah, I've been part of uh, the Bridge Presbyterian Church. I'm the organizing pastor there. And I've been part of that since its inception, which was uh, way back in 2014. Before that, I was a minister in the upstate of South Carolina. I organized and grew the Tiger River Presbyterian Church in between Greenville and Spartanburg and had another call as an associate pastor early uh, in my ministry career in, in, in the upstate. So I am Glad to be here and
1: glad to be a part of this conversation. Well, I appreciate you being a part of it. And as you know, we're in this third season of Pastor Life podcast. We are exploring some various courageous conversations that pastors might engage in with their congregations and in their contexts. And we've included politics as one of them, alongside race and climate and immigration and a number of other things. And as I've reflected on the episodes that we've done so far, it seems like there are certain ones of these courageous conversations that a pastor kind of chooses to engage. You choose to, to lead your congregation in what you hope will be a faithful, constructive, but difficult conversation. With politics, though, I wonder if it's <laughs> even possible for pastors to avoid engaging in the political what do you think?
2: I think you're exactly right. I don't think it's possible to avoid the political in our preaching and teaching ministries, or even in how we lead our congregations in mission in the world. Mm. I mean, the gospel itself is political. It's impossible to even read the first few verses of the gospel of Mark without seeing that Mark is making political assertions by announcing the birth of Jesus in ways that pit the kingdom of God against uh, the kingdom of Rome. The gospel is inherently political. Second of all, if, if we're concerned about the things that concern Jesus, which is a great phrase for us to continue to uh, invite our congregations to think about, if we're concerned about the things that concern Jesus, we're gonna find ourselves as believers moving into the realm of politics. I say this because Jesus is concerned with the homeless and the hungry. With racism, with immigration, et cetera, et cetera, and, and and third, we're living through a pandemic which has forced every congregation to make decisions that have uh, that have widespread political ramification: to mask, not to mask.
1: Yeah, it's amazing well, it, how quickly it, some of that became political, right? That that's exactly right. And so,
2: so for me, David, the question I have been wrestling with is how to lead a purple church within a highly polarized, deeply divided social and political landscape. You know, How do I prioritize my leadership? What does it mean to be a faithful and effective leader in such a polarizing context? And how can I be true to myself and my calling, while at the same time lead in ways that might grow the bond of Christian love and unity? So what I found to be most helpful was taking a continuing ed course through Princeton Seminary on being a Christian and a leader in an election year by Dr. Alan Hilton, mm. who started an organization called uh, I, House United, which mm. is an excellent resource. Everything by Dr. Hilton would be an excellent resource to dive into. Okay, And then another good resource that has helped shape my biblical and theological uh, Feelings and, and thoughts has been a book by Arthur Brooks called Love Your Enemies, Saving America from a Culture of Contempt. Hmm. In these resources that I began finding my biblical and theological uh, uh, shape, and, and it's been shaping my thinking and practice.
1: Yeah, so you you, you kind of already went directly to to. The theological resources or the grounding in the gospel for how we as Christians and particularly as Christian leaders, you know, might think about this interface between the church and politics, um, the political realm and the spiritual realm, or, you know, the gospel and, you know, this culture that's really been infused with, uh, you know, every conversation is a... It, tends to divide us between red and blue, black and white, you know, this or that, you know. Um, and and so maybe the gospel does operate at some on some different level. Um, where do you see kind of the theological ground or where, where do you go to for resources? You've mentioned a few books. Um, you've mentioned not being able to read the gospel, even from the, the, the first mm-hmm. chapter, without it being political. And, sure. And I, I think I've really noticed that as well, because I've felt uh, pushback or gotten responses about being, quote, too political in my preaching. And I thought, well, I, I really felt like I was just reading the gospel yep. and trying to think like Jesus. And so where do you sort of go for resources, scriptural, tradition, otherwise, to bring to bear on this topic? Sure.
2: Well, first of all, I think
1: uh, I share that experience of just
2: trying to be faithful to the gospel, but having people hear what I'm saying through their ideological lens. And I think we'll take a little bit deeper dive into how to combat that in just a little while. Okay. But I think that's that's a common challenge for people, especially uh, people uh, leaders who are li- uh, living and working in, in purple churches, is to how to invite people to listen to the gospel, in different ways. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But for me, the three seminal passages that have been supporting me and allowing me to think differently about living in Purple Church are John 13, 34, and 35. I <laughs> give you a new commandment that you love mm-hmm. one another, just as I have loved you. You also love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Mm-hmm. And then John 17, 20 through 21 I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that we may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, those two passages tell us that whenever Jesus spoke about Christians loving each other, it was for the purpose of unity. i mean, just sit with that for a second. He said this because he believed that Christians living together in unity can change the world. Hmm. And clearly, the book of Acts shows how the church, attempting to live in unity, can change the world. There's one more passage from Philippians chapter 2, 12-15 that's really seminal to working in a, in a purple church. At the end of this passage, Paul writes, Do all things without murmuring and arguing. Okay, how easy is that? Right. (laughs) So that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which, this is the great part, you shine like stars Hmm. in the world. Paul suggests that if we quit our selfish grumbling and unite together, and of course the "you" is plural, we're going to shine like stars. We're going to bear witness to the reality of the living God in our midst and the world around us is going to be compelled to be a part of that
1: Wow, yeah well, and it, it certainly does seem like if we the church were able to embody that sort of unity in the gospel that uh, that Jesus is calling us to that Paul is calling us to, it certainly would be countercultural, right to a, yeah. to, a, to yeah. a world that we live in, you know, uh, particularly for American Christianity. You know, we live within this uh, this context of twenty four hour news networks that are constantly trying to break news and uh, constantly trying to find an angle and sell advertisements. And uh, so, I, I think between that and between election cycles, that you know, we hardly have one election before uh, we're campaigning for the next, and it, it just seems like so many forces in our culture. Are seeking to divide us, yes, for political reasons, for economic reasons, um, that that uh, gravity toward division is is sort of uh infusing our culture right now, so if we could find an alternative way, then then it would shine we would shine out into the world, right? Uh, but it seems like it's very easy for the church to get caught up in those cultural divisions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's almost a, a resistance movement to, to seek out that unity and, and even what that would look like in the church.
2: Yeah, unity is an act of, of, of Christian resistance. Tertullian, um, he was a Roman theologian, a church father mm-hmm. from Carthage. He lived about
1: 160 to 225. I vaguely remember him from church history class. There you go.
2: Uh, In a letter he sent to the pagan Roman authorities to explain the Christian faith, listen to this. He included these words. He said, Look how they Christians love one another. For they, meaning the pagans themselves, hate one another, and how they are ready to die for each other. For pagans are readier to kill each other than die for each other. Wow. I think that. We can shine like stars by being, as you said, the sort of movement of resistance. And I think the pro- one of the primary tasks for pastors who seek to le- lead purple churches is to resist being caught up in the cultural divisions, and in particular, in the culture of contempt. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Talk, talk a little more about that. What, you know, the culture of contempt and, you know, what does that look like? Um, why do churches sort of play into that? And then, uh, you know, how do we, how do we resist or how do we build something that's not a culture of contempt?
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, um, former State Department employees, historians were polled by Current Affairs magazine asking what is the percent chance that the U.S. will enter a second armed civil war? Hmm. So these are folks who've been in other countries where civil war has erupted. The average chance was 35% within the next 15 years. Wow. Wow. One Mm. of the reasons is uh, because of what is called motivation attribution asymmetry. Study done by Northwestern University. Um, It's a phenomenon that we're all aware of. It assumes that our ideology is based in love and our opponent's ideology is based in hate. Okay. Here's the results of that survey the results showed that Democrats and Republicans have a level of, of motivation, attribution, asymmetry towards each other that is at the level of Palestinians and Israelis. Wow. And what else is fascinating is that MMA doesn't lead to anger amongst people. It leads to contempt. And here's the difference. Uh, Arthur Brooks, in his book, Love Your Enemies, he talks about contempt as being worse than anger. Because when you're angry, you still care. You still stay in the conversation. But with contempt, you just look at disgust on the other person and you leave the conversation. Mm -hmm. Contempt leads to us versus them attitudes. Mm-hmm. And so contempt is actually more poisonous and more toxic in our society, as you talked about, with the growth of wedge issues in the media and in politics. The other things that contempt do is creates an, uh, an addiction to contempt. Why do we watch this stuff all the time? Mm-hmm. Except that we hate it, but we're addicted to it. It also creates ideological siloing. You know, um, Fourteen percent of Republicans, nine percent of Democrats, have a lot of close friends from opposing parties. Hmm. So less than fifteen percent of us have close friends in other political parties. Hmm. Most of all, the contempt holds us hostage. So one point of emphasis for me, leading a purple church, is I'm trying to work at the church uh, it, to combat the rising level of contempt. Here's here's some things I'm doing, Dave. I'm inviting us to find common ground in which we can work together missionally. Mm-hmm. I'm inviting us to center our life in small groups that gather around the word. Now, this isn't radical and new, but the orientation we have towards it is different. And I'll drill down a little bit more on that as well. Mm-hmm. Also, as we reemerge from the pandemic to be intentional about praying and playing together. But most importantly, I, I preach, teach, and embody the love of Jesus Christ and the bond of Christian love and unity, which we are called to as an ecclesia, as a body of Christ. So what I'm trying to do is at a higher level than just preach and teach about polarizing topics. Some of my colleagues push back on me, telling me that I, if I avoid conversations on hot topic issues of the day, um, for, for the sake of keeping the peace, that I'm not being faithful. And, and, and I get that. But my thinking is, that I'm trying to work at a different level, the level of detoxing my congregation from a level of contempt that we are immersed in every single day and trying to replace that by creating situations in which people of different political ideologies begin seeing each other as human beings, not as evil, and naming that and drilling down deeper, seeing each other as followers of Jesus Christ rather than being progressive or liberal and inviting people to rise above their ideological differences in the bond of Christian love. So I I, I just, I don't think right now it's always helpful in purple churches Mm -hmm. for a pastor to preach about a controversial topic, especially because they're motivated by guilt to do so, especially when things that right now are so polarized. I don't think it really moves the needle one way or another. But leading a congregation with an intentional vision of trying to counter the, the, the contempt that media and politicians breed by focusing on the Christian gospel of just simply loving one another and, and showing how loving one another creates a bond of unity that is compelling. And that's what the world needs to see. And that is even a form of evangelism. I think that's a, a first of many steps for pastoring in a purple church.
1: Well, and it seems like, and I've talked about this a lot with people of different ages. Yeah. You know, you think about the congregation as one of those places, one of those few places in modern culture where people of all ages are in the same place at the same time. I think you could also talk about that in terms of our, our political divides out in the world. There are very few places where there are fewer and fewer places where people from across the political spectrum gather in one place, and for us as churches uh, with a common mission with with a common focus and goal and so it it truly could be that with the purple church, there is this opportunity to bridge some of the divisions that are there outside of the sanctuary as we gather. Within the sanctuary and on mission in the world together, maybe maybe that's kind of both the challenge and also sort of the the, uh, the the calling of those of us who are pastoring in in purple territory.
2: Yeah, let me let me drill a little deeper because you're you spot yeah. on, David. Let me drill a little deeper. And I, I did a class on purple church. I invited five elders, and then they invited somebody from the congregation. So there was ten of us, and that was purely on Zoom back in the height of COVID. So we were on Zoom together and we kind of presented some of this material, dug a little deeper and came up with some faithful practices. The larger question that we asked was, how can we look in love to the opposite and forge a common future? Mm -hmm. Okay, So here's a couple of things that we decided to do and we had various levels of success, but I'll invite the listeners to consider this. One is when I taught, this class being a purple church, I invited everyone to change their news feeds for the for the seven weeks. Said so if you lean into Fox, I invite you to also lean into MSNBC and vice versa. Because if we're truly seekers of truth, then there's merit in this exercise. It can, at minimum, help us understand the point of view of those we disagree with. And it's certainly faithful to the prayer attributed to St. Francis, who said, right. We not so much seek to be understood as to understand. Right, right. So another thing we tried to do uh, is uh, encourage folks in the class to get involved in organizations or clubs where they could counter encounter a lot of diversity. Self-selection is such an important piece in siloing. So um, we invited folks to get involved in, in, in places where there's a lot of diversity. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, a a project in our community uh, that is, uh, we're primarily a, a, a Anglo-Saxon white congregation. There's a project uh, of uh, rebuilding an African American church that was originally on a slave plantation, and that's primarily an African American project. So we've invited some diversity and some conversation there as a way of uh, getting out of self-selecting uh, our, our and, and curating our networks. Um, also, um, we have begun to. Ask people to consider the why question. Let me, let me drill down a little bit deeper. In identity politics, it focuses on our bonding identity. Mm-hmm. It emphasizes what's in common. You know, David, you and I, we have this thing in common. We're both pinnacle leadership associates. If you were from the great state of Wisconsin, like I was, we would have another thing in mm-hmm. common. These characteristics that distinguish one group from another lead to us versus them and they build contempt actually but when we bridge our common identity across diverse characteristics by asking why are we doing this together rather than looking at who we are and our likenesses that has this this tendency to unite rather than divide so we have begun as a congregation asking the why question sharing our common human stories before we look at what Divides us, and we do that particularly in mission. And it's a it's a biblical model. Look at Matthew and Judas, two opposite ends of the political spectrum. Paul and Ananias in Acts nine, when they they were united by asking the why question: mm-hmm. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? What is Jesus? You know, why is Jesus calling us to do this? So so yeah, avoiding echo chambers, avoiding self segregation, diversifying your news feeds. And the last thing for Purple Church pastors that could they could do is transform diversity, political diversity, into an asset. Hmm. Make it conscious within the community. Tell each other, hey, we're a Purple Church. We have a lot of diversity of political opinion here. So name it. It becomes normative. The other thing it does is we can make this an asset in our evangelism. Because if we can learn to get along, to listen to each other, to respect our differences— Boy, that's going to be compelling for the world around us, who wants to see a group of people who can be united in the bond of Christian love. So
1: Yeah. Yeah, these are all really helpful, Doug. I, I really appreciate you diving deep into some of the ways that your congregation is approaching these divides, cultural divides. Um you know, I think more and more of of, of those of us who are in pastoral leadership and churches are realizing that in the pews and our congregations or in the chairs or however we gather around tables um, that there are people who not only theologically come from diverse places or just educational background, you know, the the sort of places where you grew up uh, that the political divide is, is just right there. And yet for some reason, we have, have, have chosen to follow Jesus together in this uh, Mm -hmm. local body of Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and and so I think seeing that as an asset and, and naming that to say, yes, we are a purple church. Yes. There are people who think differently, uh, on any given wedge issue or political issue. Um, let, let's talk about that. Let's ask why then do we unite around something that's bigger than those issues. uh,
2: Exactly. And this points to one of the things I promised to drill deeper in it is, is how we are going to engage scripture together. Mm -hmm. That is a central piece for a purple church, not just engage in scripture, but how we do that. How do we get our two tribes into conversation? How Mm -hmm. do we get both sides to find a common starting place? And scripture's the answer. You, uh, you and I talked before and you asked about what's changed in my ministry uh, in terms of the, the, the culture of congregations and their relationship to politics. One thing that has changed is that over the past 20 or 25 years, I found that the, that, that the identity of many congregants is now shaped primarily by, uh, political ideologies rather than scripture and tradition. Hmm. We need to, we need to reverse that. And, and, and at times, if needed, we need to call that out as idolatry mm-hmm. because that's what it is, to invite people to let their worldview and their identity be shaped by scripture, even in all of our disagreements of how we interpret it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. Hilton shared some insights from Jewish tradition that I think are important to bear on how we study scripture together. One 21st century Jewish writer reflected it this way, he said, Judaism is not a winner-take-all system. That's Isn't that great? Uh, that is. Um, from ever from early days our, our our sages recognized that 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 um, even two good people, wise people, could disagree and recognize and choose differently for the sake of heaven. Hmm. And I think that's those are good watchwords for us is to say, hey, we are both in this not to win an argument, not to prove an ideological point, but we're in this for the sake of heaven, for the sake and glory. Of Jesus Christ,
1: so it, it seems like one of the primary uh, roles of a pastoral leader in the purple church is to continue to call people back to that ideal, to continue to call people back to Scripture, to continue to to sort of voice out in the congregation or maybe even out in the larger world that um, that that there are um, there are, are higher, more noble. Um, ways that we can work together for either the common good or for the good of the gospel or for the sake of heaven, as that Jewish uh, uh, scholar said. Um, do you see that as kind of a, a primary identity point or maybe a primary uh, pastoral uh, role in the congregation?
2: I do. I see it as a primary pastoral role and I see it, The word primary is really important because I think that we can get to places in congregations where we're able to have hard and difficult conversations in which we disagree passionately if we, first of all, have agreed, number one, that central to our understanding, our identity, our worldview is Scripture. Scripture is authoritative. Mm -hmm. Second of all, if we can get to the point where we've developed such strong bonds of love amongst each other through mission, through ministry, through study, through worship, that they can transcend our ideological disagreements. So all of this detoxing of a culture of contempt by creating a, an alternative uh, a countercultural community, That I think that's a prerequisite and central pastoral task mm-hmm. before we really engage in... Um, having hard and controversial topics.
1: One of the things that's occurring to me as we've talked is, so in this season of the podcast, we have had a number of episodes that have been focused on a particular conversation or issue. And then we've had some other episodes that have focused on a model or a framework for engaging those issues and and I feel like what we're doing today is is really some of both, you know. A lot of what you've talked about is the the need for our congregations to to be a model for uh, bringing people together uh, with a higher purpose that can, in some way, you know, our, our focus on mission, our focus on embodying the good news in the world, you know, our focus on scripture. Uh, that can help to heal some of the divides that are uh, a, a part of living in the world that we live in. So, so I kind of feel like we're we're both talking about the framework for having the conversation, and and then also about what that what the challenges of that that p- political conversation are. Um, anything? Yeah. I'm not saying that we
2: should avoid hard conversations. I'm saying we should, we should disagree better. Yeah. Right. Let's disagree better. Okay. Let's learn how we can disagree as people of faith and let's center that. Let's let our due North be, be scripture. Yeah. Let's, let's be intentional and find people that we respect. And and so important we didn't talk about, but trust. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, let's avoid attack insult. Let's avoid trying to win arguments. Let's never assume other people's motives. Let's not use values as weapons. You know, let's, let's listen, restate. Um, all these, all these things that we just used to learn and used to know how to do uh, as people of faith that we've lost. Um, so yeah, I just want to learn to disagree better, not, not avoid it, not just play nice together, right? But be authentic and real, but just disagree better.
1: That's great. That's great. Now, this is shifting gears a little bit, but I sure. know that uh, in, in the not too distant past, you explored a run for local office there in your community. And uh, I, I wonder if there are things that you learned from that experience. I know ultimately you decided against that run, but I don't really remember all the sequencing of things. Um, no. what, what did you learn? Uh, why did you decide what you ultimately decided? And, and how does that kind of play into this conversation, if at all? Sure.
2: sure. Uh, early in my ministry, I became involved in a number of civic organizations and charitable boards and even a committee, a subcommittee for the town of, of Leland, the Economic Development Committee. Through the involvement, uh, some folks asked me to consider running for city council. <clears throat> I prayed about it. I talked with uh, my... Uh, couple mentors, a spiritual director, and felt led to continue to pursue that. Um, one of the things that was compelling about it was it was a nonpartisan office. And I thought, wow, that could be a model right there. Let's do something in a, in a decidedly nonpartisan way. I was interested in engaging the community on a number of important issues like how, what kind of drinking water we have and where will this new bridge be built and <clears throat> uh, how do we develop a uh, uh, Low cost uh, uh, homes for for folks who are are not ready to retire in our community. It's a lot, lot of important issues. Um, but primarily, I thought I could be a voice that would that would bring about unity. Uh, so I decided not to run because of a number of potentially contentious issues that we're facing in the community. Uh, and I thought that they might bleed into my leadership, even if we were careful about setting ground rules. They might, they might be divisive in the congregation. So, you know, ultimately I decided not to run, but I said not to run at this time. Part of it was that we were, we're a young congregation. At that time, we were about five and a half years old and we were making some important decisions about next steps and in, in our growth. And I thought that could be a, uh, this could get us out of our lanes for what God was calling us to do. And my primary calling was to be the pastor to these people. So, um, one of the things I did learn, though, is that there are people in every congregation that say what people said to me Doug, we just want to come to church to worship God, not get involved in contentious political issues. Yeah. And I think,
1: yeah. <clears throat> How did you hear that from them in, in that? moment as you're trying to discern? And, and and if somebody came to you and said, we don't want to hear about divisive issues from the pulpit, or we want to keep that separate, how does that strike you? How did you hear that? Or how did you respond?
2: Well, I mean, you, you sp- respond to those comments theologically, and you respond to them pastorally. And pastorally, I heard pain in people who were tired and weary of, of everything that goes on contentiously, all the wedge issues that you talked about that the media drives. So I heard that pastorally for them, but also theologically and biblically, um, we need to be faithful to the gospel and the gospel is going to bring us in, sometimes uh, in sharp resolution with, with, uh, with issues that are political and some of the things that we don't necessarily believe in. Personally, I know that I've changed in many of my own uh, social and cultural views because of deeper dives into the gospel. So I didn't want to avoid that. But at that particular time, as it was relevant to me running for office or not, I was, I, I kind of fell on the side of being a pastor and also not recognizing uh, the leadership that I needed to provide at the church at this time. So, but on a general note, I think part of the task in a purple church is to tell people and to show people that this gospel that has grabbed a hold of us is inherently political. And it's gonna take us into into the waters that are gonna be murky and turbid, and uh, and it's gonna change us as it changes the world. And we can't isolate ourselves from that and still be faithful.
1: Yeah, I think that conversation around what does it look like to be faithful in a world of division and uh, I, I think that's a, a really important question for pastors and for Christians. And uh, I, I think if, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, um, then by definition, that means that we are concerned for our neighbors. It means that we're concerned for building the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And so by nature, the way that we act in the world is going to have a political in the purest sense of the word yes. dimension to it and yes. and and so I think your um, your guidance and and the experience that you've had some of these ways that you've lined out uh, ways that purple church leaders can can think about uh, the, the the way that we embody the gospel I think those are all really really helpful and uh, and I guess I would just maybe ask you as we kind of kind of tie up the, the loose ends of this conversation you know, is is there any additional advice or encouragement? Uh, what's a, a hopeful word that you would speak to to pastors out there? Who, I mean, I think the reality is that that many pastors feel weighed down by. Um, these kind of conversations, and 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 weighed down by this idea that just reading a gospel text and worship is is going to get negative feedback from people. Uh, so, so what advice or encouragement would you have for pastors who are day by day um, trying to be faithful in in leading people in in purple churches?
2: Yeah, my word of advice would be that this is opportunity time. It's a great opportunity. For us to to be intentional about focusing our churches first and foremost, primarily building the bond of Christian love in Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus talked about that, he always had in view unity for the purpose of shining, as Paul said, like like stars in the night. If we are able to develop the bond of Christian love to transcend our differences that's evangelistic. That's what people are hungry. That's what they thirst for. That's what they're looking for. So this is an opportunity. I'm not saying avoid controversial topics. Although I am saying, quite honestly, if you're in a purple church jumping into controversial topics for the sake of doing that, I don't know how much it's going to move the needle until we do the pre-work. Reducing contempt, developing a, a culture that asks why are we doing this looking at each other as brothers and sisters in faith through the lens of scripture not through political ideologies as we do that we can wade deeper into more courageous conversations around immigration around uh, uh you know around racism i'm su- i'm suggesting a, a first step and it's a hopeful step and if we can do this and do it well by by the power of the holy spirit we can shine like stars in the sky
1: well, Doug, thank you so much. Thanks for being here and sharing your wisdom. Um, thanks for sharing your experience uh, there at the bridge and uh, the, just for, for, for being a conversation partner in this. And I do think that is a, a word of encouragement for us, all of us as pastors who are, who are leading churches and uh, who, who want the best for our people. Um, But who more than that want the best for the kingdom of God and our local communities? And I I think it's a a great call to faithfulness that you've issued uh, to us. So thank you for being a part of this and uh, for coming on the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks for the great work you and Rhonda are doing and appreciate all of you who have tuned in today. Thank you.
1: Well, if you are listening out there and you would uh, like to engage more with us, uh, feel free to look at the show notes. We'll post some of the references that have come up in our conversation today. Also, give us a like on Facebook or subscribe to the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know any more about Pinnacle and the services we provide to churches the ways that we are trying to help individuals and congregations to engage God's mission in the world, you can go to pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. And we will look forward to engaging you in those various places and spaces. So thanks so much for listening in. Hope you pastors out there will take some encouragement and some challenge from this courageous conversation. Thanks so much and see you next time.